0: Uh, Professor Menashri did his PhD in Iran and in Tehran. um, His main field of research is social and political history of modern Iran, Central Asia, and the Persian Gulf, looking at issues of education, modernization, and the like. He's taught and lectured literally all over the world. He was a Ford Foundation and Fulbright Foundation scholar. He he taught at the University of Chicago, Melbourne University, Princeton University, University of Munich, literally all over the world. Um, he is the go to person on Iranian issues in Israel and internationally. Uh, he's written widely and published books, including uh, Iran, The Autonomy of a Revolution, and Religion and State in the Middle East. And I can go on, and I'll, I'll stop there, but welcome.
1: to use a microphone? No, I don't,
2: I don't think Israelis uh, should be asked to speak louder. It, it's come naturally. In two minutes, you will, uh, you will just let me just get
1: it. Uh, it's not a big, big crowd for uh, loud speakers, right? Some people uh, are hard of hearing. Yes, I, I, so I, that you, I reach them myself. So that your opinion can't help us.
2: <laughs> so let me, if, you, if it won't work, I'll go to, to the microphone, okay? Uh, So I'm I'm glad to be here, seeing also some uh, old-time friends here. And uh, uh, following what uh, Charles has been doing with his study of anti-Semitism, although my field is not really anti-Semitism, but what we see in Iran with the leaders of Iran, it's, I think, the leading uh, country in denial of Holocaust. So what else do you need to label, government is being anti, anti, anti-Semite anti or anti-Zionist or anti-Israeli, all of them are together. So it's very difficult to make the distinction between when anti-Zionism ends and anti-Semitism comes in. Because it's very difficult to convince me what is the difference between the two. So how you can convince the crowd, the people in the streets of Tehran when they go and, and state death to Israel, death to Israel every day. So there would be lover of Zion or lover of the, of the Jews. It's very hard to uh, believe. But my topic today has to do with uh, Iran, Israel, and the Middle East, and from looking from the aftermath of the uh, recent cycle of violence in the, between Israeli and Hamas uh, in, the, in the Gaza Strip. Let me begin with Iran, and uh, because. Often enough, I get the impression that it's uh, not sufficiently understood uh, in the West. After 33 years of Islamic revolution, and I I still believe that many people don't really understand what is the essence, what is the meaning of uh, the Islamic revolution in Iran? What was the intentions? Why did people join Ayatollah Khomeini and went to the streets to Tehran? Because uh, if you don't understand this, this, it would be difficult to understand Uh, what's going on in Iran and also in the Middle East. Uh, When I uh, stepped in, uh, you know, today it's very dangerous to speak. You speak you give a talk somewhere, and then after a few years, someone comes to you and gives you a quote from what you said. This gentleman here brought me and said, I have to ask you something about your lecture with the American Jewish Congress, it was the World Jewish Congress. World Jewish Congress. Two thousand nine, yes. March first. Okay. Uh, I forgot it but mm-hmm. you reminded me okay. the documents. Right. And okay. I was I uh, was I was afraid that he's going to tell me where did I go wrong. Uh, luckily it was not the case. I was speaking about my understanding at that time of the Islamic Revolution. And basically it's you can see the similar thing in Iran, in, in Egypt today. Because again, you see the same thing. People going to the street, asking to change the regime, believing that you remove the Shah, remove Saddam Hussein, remove uh, Mubarak, and then you get to the, the, the promised land. And then suddenly you realize that your revolution has been intercepted by He's sitting here. And uh, the way we look at, it, at, 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 at the revolution in Iraq, it's, it's, Sometimes I think it's, it's not very fair for the Iranian people. Because Iran is certainly not a full white country. Def- not everything in Iran is good. But also it's not totally black. There are different colors. And I think it's important that we understand that even in the country that maybe we don't like, there are different people, different, different attitudes. It's not only in the Western world you have different ideas, different political parties, of different movements within the political system, you can see the same thing in in Iran. And before going on, I want to share with you, I think, the basic questions that comes to mind for when I think about what is a proper understanding of Iran. The first thing is to understand what the people of Iran wished for when they joined Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979 and went on to topple the Shah to create Islamic revolution? Was the revolution Islamic? I can tell you, the Islamic revolution in Iran was Islamic, much like the movement in Tahrir square in in Cairo was Islamic. In both cases, and also in in Libya and other places, if you ask yourself what moved the people to join movement or leader to topple a regime and create a new reality, I think that the main issue was to satisfy two basic wishes of the people of Egypt or of Iran, to provide social justice and political justice. And I can even narrow down the whole thing to two words. The people of Iran in 1979 were asking for bread and freedom. And again, it's not much different from what the people in Egypt, Cairo, were asking just a year and a half, almost two weeks ago. I don't think that it would be appropriate to think that what moved people to go to the street was to establish Islamic regime. Just to remind you, in this Islamic movement of 1979 in Iran, there have been so many communists, liberals, intellectuals, right wing, left wing. And I don't think that they dream was to establish a theocracy led by Ayatollah Khomeini. People moved to the revolution, the Islamic revolution, because life was miserable and they were looking for hope. Ayatollah Khomeini sold them the hope that under his leadership everything would be wonderful. 33 years after, this has not yet uh, happened. I lived at that time in Iran. And Charles was right. I was in Iran before the revolution, but I didn't write my PhD in Iran. I was collecting a field study, and that's what I thought. If you, uh, if you study a country, and it's open to you, and you can travel, uh, it will be, I think it will be useful and important to go and live in the country and study it from inside. And, uh, and when you live two years in a country like Iran, you, you better understand what moves people. Uh, you come closer to their culture, to their history. Today, but I'm saying it because I see today that there are so many, uh, I'm an old timer. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, I, I, I'm not struggling for my position in the world of orientalism of Iranian studies. But I look today at the television and newspapers, who appears to be Iran expert in Israel or the United States, I'm shocked. Many of them have not read two articles about Iran. And they come and explain to you what is Iran about. I think it's important to go back to people who really study the country, maybe even having empathy for the people, to being able to understand better the truths of the nation. And I think the proper understanding of Islamic revolution will bring you to the conclusion that it was not all about bringing Ayatollah Khomeini and making him the supreme leader of the state of Iran. The idea was to (coughs) make sure that your children will have better life than your miserable life in the 70s in Iran. Then the question, the second question is to what degree this? Ideology of this revolution is Islamic, and you know there is no one Islamic ideology. They are all Muslims, but there are different tendencies, different understanding of, 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 uh, of religion. Judaism today is not exactly what it used to be three thousand years ago. Islam. Uh, Or Christianity is not exactly what it used to be two thousand years ago. And why should we believe that Islam will remain exactly the same as Prophet Muhammad brought him to earth in the seventh century? We we live today as as a religion, not by what is religion Judaism, Christianity, Shinto, Hinduism, have been in the past, but by our understanding today of the principles of the religion of the and our understandings vary. Just to give you an example about Iran, do you know how many clerics in Iran are in jail today? And not because they are Muslims, because they are Muslims who happen to think differently than the current uh, trend in government. When Khomeini came to Iran, there have been seven grand ayatollahs, the highest ranking ayatollahs in Iran. None of them supported Ayatollah Khomeini. I'll give you another example. The man that Ayatollah Khomeini declared to be his successor after his death started criticizing Ayatollah Khomeini. And Khomeini removed him from this position, and he was under house arrest until he passed away two years ago. What it means is that within the body of Islam or Islamic radicalism, still there are different <coughs> tendencies. Different. Look at the Gaza Strip. When you will see it, Hamas and other Salafists, Islamic jihadists, there are so many, they, you may from distance not see the differences between them. But what is how close is Al-Qaeda to the Islamic movement in Iraq? How close is Hezbollah to Al-Qaeda? it's not only because shiite islam or sunni islam because of different understanding of the basic principles of islam so what we see here is is not exactly islamic revolution is a revolution in the understanding of islam that we are witnessing which is growing radicalism and again it's not only in iran you can see it in the sunni world you can see it in in turkey you can see it in all, all over the middle east this is a era of Islamization, of return to the principles, so to speak, of Islam, and they're competing with, other, with each other who is more radical. In this sense, Iran is a more advanced country. Because while the young people in the, in the Arab <coughs> world are going to the streets and, and chanting the slogan, Islam is the solution, you will not hear today young people in Iran stating Islam is the solution. Rather, they ask, is Islam the solution? Because was after 33 years of Islamic power. I think the greatest damage to Islam in Iran is the coming to power of the Islamic regime led by Ayatollah Khomeini today with Khamenei. Until now, this was the utopian belief that under Islam, the world would be wonderful. Uh, 33 years after. When the young people of Iran ask themselves, is our life better today than our parents lived 35 years ago? The answer will be no. There is no better welfare for the poor people of Iran today than used to be under the Shah, and there is no greater freedom today than used to be under the Shah. And I can tell you the difference. Under the Shah to speak, and he was not a Democrat, I know. I live. Whoever lived in Iran, few months can understand. I learned to appreciate democracy when I lived in a non-democratic state of Iran. And I think that only if you live in a non-democratic system, you can understand the value of democracy. And This message to the young people around here not to take democracy for granted. It's the most valuable principle I think that we have. So the Shah was not a democrat. Under the Shah, to speak against him was a crime. Today, to speak against the Ayatollahs is a sin. I don't know which one of them is better.
1: <laughs>
2: so, but democracy, there is no. There has not been, and there is still no. Like, you see in Egypt, before Mubarak, after Mubarak, I don't see greater democracy, democracy today. And of course, the people say, well, he was elected <coughs> in a democratic way. Big deal some big dictators in the world emerged uh, in by democratic uh, elections and speaking about anti-semitism you know the greatest anti-semite of 60 years ago 70 years ago also was elected democratic, right. democratic way. to be a democracy you don't need only to be elected democratic way you have to be also being capable of removing you in democratic way And and I don't know who is going to remove these Ayatollahs in power in democratic way, when the constitution doesn't allow for someone who is against you to run in elections. So, and then maybe another question, the third question I was asked when I started with, how Islamic it is, the revolution by its roots, uh, how Islamic it is by its ideology, And the second question is, how faithful is this ideal, is this government, the Islamic regime, to the principles with which they came to power? And you know, what happened in Iran, it happens in any other ideological movement, in opposition from opposition to power. In opposition, it's wonderful. You have have the solution for all the problems in the world. Join me and I'll... You know, pave the way and solve the problems. That's wonderful. Ideology is wonderful for opposition. When you bring it to power, you start corrupting your ideology. Why? Because in Iran you have to feed 75 million people. With pure principles of the past, you cannot solve the problems of the future. I could have given you so many examples how wherever there is a clash between ideology and interest in Islamic Iran, Interest wins over ideology, because the the basic uh, rationale of policy making is not to be faithful to the principles of your ideology, but rather to be faithful to two principles, which may be one, to preserve the national interest of the state or the, the survival of the current and for this regime, there is no difference between the two because they think, we are the state, we are Islam, whoever is against us is against Islam. But when they come to policy making, they have become more and more pragmatic. But the question is how much you should be pragmatic, in what field, in what trade There are differences between the Iranians themselves. There are so many different factions, groupings with different philosophies. But we can narrow them down to two main camps, one that we call reformist, pragmatist, moderates, if you wish, and the other radical extremist fundamentalist. I I have much respect for civil society in Iran. I think Iran has very important and solid pro democracy, civil society. They have achieved so much in 30 few, 33 years. And I know that Iran is not paradise. I don't. I, I don't urge you to go or I recommend you to go and buy a ticket to travel to Iran. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll come to the ugly face of Iran in a moment. But there is also a nice face of Iran. If you look at women organizations in Iran, they are the most active in the Middle East, wow. including Israel. If you look at this, women in universities, it's mostly, more or less like in was 60% of the students in, the, in Iran are women. 70 years ago there was not a single girl in a university. This is an irreversible process. Movie industry in Iran is the best in the Muslim world. Newspapers that are published in Iran are interesting to read as long as they are allowed to be published. I was speaking like this a few years ago in Israel and one of our officials in the crowd asked me how you can speak about even relative freedom of expression where 100 newspapers were shut down in five years. Well, here is the answer show me another country in the Middle East which has 100 liberal newspapers to shut them down. <laughs> Shutting down 50, 100 liberal newspapers is meaningful. It means that they did operate. Again, when the government didn't like them, they closed them. They put the editors to jail. But the newspapers, I was living in Persian newspapers, in Arabic newspapers, in, 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 in uh, Iraq, Iraqi newspapers, you can't compare it books published in Iran are interesting to read. Again, as long as the author is alive or not in jail. uh, But I'll give you a title of a book published in Tehran by one of the students who occupied the American embassy, which was faithful to Ayatollah Khomeini, one of the radicals of the radicals of 79. He writes a book in 2000 and says the title of a fascist interpretation of Islam complaining in his book that the Islamic regime is fascist. Well, of course he went to jail. You can't write such a book and not visit a, a mean jail. But the book was published in ten editions in Iran. Another of the Iranian leaders of the Islamic revolution, the man who was in charge of the cultural revolution in Iran, the man who closed all universities in Iran for three years to get rid of unfaithful uh, uh, professors, Abdul Karim Surush, he writes a big article with the title, "the the number one problem of Iran is the rule of the clergy." Mm-hmm. So you can see, uh, you can see this. Sorry, this was Kadivar. This was Kadivar, was another intellectual in Iran, faithful to Ayatollah Khomeini, <coughs> and he changed his mind. So we, and, and he also went to jail. Soros didn't go to jail because he was so close to the authorities, but he is out of the... He he's, he's, he's now in the United States. So a whole group of people who started as ultra-radicals, Khomeini's uh, occupiers of the American Embassy that you so well know, they changed sides. And turned to be the more nicer face of Iran. And now I think... I. I paid my dues to this nice group in Iran, and and again, uh, it is not that Iran is a, democ- dem- a democracy, but there are some periods of impulses of democracy. I was speaking about with a friend of mine from one of the Iranian universities. We have a forum of meeting for many years now, meeting with professors from different countries of the Middle East, including Iran. And he told me that, uh, I asked him about this dichotomy between free expression and suppression in Iran. You speak up and you go to jail. And he told me, you know, they tell you in the West that there is no uh, freedom of expression in Iran. That's not true. We have freedom of expression. What we don't have is freedom after expression. if you think about it, it's is, 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 is deeper than it sounds. The Iranians speak up, go to jail, and come out and continue the struggle or leave the country. So what else I can say about these nice people? The problem is that they don't have any share in deciding the policy of the God. Because all po- power is in the hand of the other group, the radical extremist fundamentalist who have three major elements of power. One, they pretend to speak in the name of God. You know, it's very good when you wake up in the morning and face your people and tell them exactly what is the will of God. I don't know, the SMS, the email, the fax. They know, they know. Well, we have some of them in Israel, so it's not, they uh, shouldn't be surprised. that there are people who, who claim to speak on behalf of of God. It's very powerful in traditional society. Right? Because people are devoted to Islam. Right? And when they have these ayatollahs speaking the way they speak, it's it, it has its influence. Now this is one element of power, it's claiming or speaking in the name of God. Now, if God is not enough, or well, it should be enough, but just in the case is not on God, they have the revolutionary guards in the army. So if you are a revolution, you have the support of God and the support of the army, what else possibly you need <laughs> to survive? Well, there is another thing of which they have plenty the determination to fight for their power and to crash any opposition. And they have done it again and again, including in 2009 when students went to the street after being cheated in the elections
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they have been suppressed. And I think you saw these pictures in your, on your screens. I'll give you an example of what the mentor of President Ahmadinejad at that time said, while the military was crushing the young revolutionaries or anti revolutionaries, this man, Atullah Mesbah Yazdi, on a Friday sermon, he said the following sentence, which is whoever is a Muslim, this is a blasphemy. He said that whoever thinks, that Islam is a religion of mercy, does not understand Islam at all. And this Ayatollah Mizbahir, grand Ayatollah Mizbahir. that people think he is the mentor of Ahmadinejad, continues and saying, Islam is a religion that dictates to us to cut the heads and the tongues of people who speak or act against us. That's the, the mood of this, of this movement. We are Islam and whoever is against us is anti Islam and he is doomed to be to be killed. Recently one of the bloggers in Iran, a young Iranian man, was basically he he was he found dead in jail. I don't know, they killed him, executed him, no one knows but his his mother gets a call from Evangel and asking him come and take you the body of your son. Mm. That's the way it goes. Think about uh, right of woman. Have you heard about stoning of a woman? Yeah, of Do you know what what kind of death it is that everyone goes and throws a stone until how hours after hours this woman struggles and then she's dead. And I wonder what is your meaning? What is the the conscience of Western civilization when these kind of violations of human rights, violation of women's rights, children's rights, the only thing that they can do is to blame Israel for whatever Israel does or they don't do. And I don't want to ask them to make uh, concessions to us, criticize us, that's fine. But what about looking somewhere else? That's what I keep saying. And I may come to it later on when I speak about the Hamas and what's going on there. Now, with these two groups thinking differently in Iran, and the government is generally pragmatic, why we don't see their pragmatism when it comes to Israel? Because in about Israel there is there are no two camps. Even the more moderates or pragmatists or whatever you call them, they are almost anti-Israeli as the others. Why? Because pragmatism in Iran is not, the government that is not pragmatist by intention or voluntarily. You become pragmatic when you have to pay a very high price. Now, there is a difference in my understanding between pragmatism and moderation. Pragmatism is not really moderation. Pragmatism is that you calculate the risks and decide to change your policy because you don't want to pay that high price. Let me put it this way. Hamas agreeing to ceasefire with Israel two weeks ago was pragmatic, was not a moderate policy. So the regime does not withdraw from its ideology voluntarily. They do it only when there is no choice. Mm -hmm. The greatest sign of pragmatism in Iran was in 1988 when Ayatollah Khomeini, after eight years of war with Iraq, in which he said, war, war until victory, one day he woke up, looked straight to the eyes of these people and say, it would have been sweeter for me to drink poison than signing an agreement with Saddam Hussein, but we don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. The decision that Iran is facing today is of the same magnitude. Negotiating with the United States or changing its policy towards, uh, towards Israel is it, it's a major decision that we don't see people of Iran capable of making. The people of Iran who want to change their policy towards Israel don't have the power to do so, and those who who have the power don't have the will. But generally speaking, we see in Iran the ideological animosity towards Israel, but at the same time, they have pragmatic reasons to struggle against Israel. Here we don't see any conflict between ideology and, and, and interest. Ideologically they are against Israel because they believe that this war is not on boundaries. It's not political. It's religious between the good and the bad. One of them must be destroyed for the other to survive. Judaism is religion. It's not nationality. Jews don't have the right to have a state of themselves. Certainly not in the Middle East. Of course not with Jerusalem uh, as its capital. Israel is the tool of Western imperialism, and I often don't know if they hate Israel because of its good relations with the United States or they hate America because of its relations with yes. Israel. But for them, just to, just one thing should be clear. America is the enemy, not Israel. Look at their vocabulary. America is the great Satan. Israel is the lesser Satan. If you use their own terminology, America is the enemy, and they are right because the whole animosity of the Islamic revolution towards Israel is, is really not sufficient to understand. If we even take the, the, okay, they are against Israel. They are against the Jewish state of Israel. This revolution came to life only because of Israel, because of seven million people, including the Arabs. Look at the vision of this, of this movement. This movement wants to be the substitute for the past ideologies, as they see it, Com- uh, communist Soviet Union and capitalist America. One of them is gone. The turn of the others is soon to come. Islam is the ideology of the future, of the 21st century. If you have such an ideology, what is Israel all about? It's peanuts. Maybe you said pistachio when you speak about Iran. It's really not significant. <laughs> We should not overestimate our, our uh, you know, power and influence in the world. But why they hate us so much? Because it's convenient. Mm. Whenever you want to divert public opinion from misery at home, you raise the flag of Jerusalem. Sometimes I must be admit, I, I wonder, what could have happened if there was no state of Israel? I, I'm sure that the Iranians would be very willing to establish the Jewish state of Israel. Because we serve a good interest of the Islamic regime. We are, as Persian, uh, the Persians say, a low war, that you can step on us. You want to be a major power in the Middle East? You have to raise the flag of, of Jerusalem. Otherwise, why Iran is so much obsessed with Hamas and Hezbollah? Well, maybe a Hezbollah is Shiite community. What about Hamas? Why? Because if you, it's good to have an enemy far away from your neighborhood. You know, there was a war between, in Nagorno-Karabakh, between Christian Armenians and Shiite Azeris. Who know? You know whom Iran supported? Iran supported Armenian Christians in their war against Muslim Shiites. Why? Because it was their interest in the in their borders. Armenia, the Christians, are not their enemies. The Azeris, because Iran also has big, of twenty million Azeris in their own country. So you can you can see all over the borders of Iran, but when it comes from far away. It's convenient because they don't pay the price. Well, they they pay hundreds of millions of dollars to to arm the Hezbollah and to arm the Hamas. But Iranians are not killed on our own borders. They are willing to fight until the last Palestinian. That's very convenient. You don't see them sending their children to fight. And they're doing it because of their interest. So... If you have such a situation that there is no negation between ideology and interest, this animosity can go Now, what can be done? I, I, I didn't mention the nuclear issue because I think you read so much about it all over and I don't think I have to go into it. It's a major problem. Uh, I don't know how much time I have. Let's say about one thing about the nuclear issue. Uh, Iran going nuclear is bad. <laughs> whatever, whatever, no, no, I'm serious because I'm going to say something else. Uh, so I wanted to know that I, I think that everything should be done to prevent such a radical ideology to keep on the other hand nuclear weapon. It is bad because of this combination of intention and capabilities we can live with countries that have nuclear power we can live with radical regimes but combining the both, both of them is, is is very crucial it's not i think that it's not good even for the people of iran to build the nuclear facilities in such a secrecy in an area that is prone to earthquakes. No, Charles mentioned my travels in the world in search of ilm, knowledge. So I've been uh, six months in Japan. If there is any nation in the world that is mindful of the eventuality of earthquakes, it's the only Japanese. I remember I was at the University of Waseda, one of the best universities in Japan, Tokyo. The first thing that they gave me when they when they gave me the key to the apartment, was instruction, how you survive earthquake. Where is the whistle and where is the light and what you do and where you hide? And this Fukushima tragedy that happened in Japan can certainly happen in a place like Iran, and they are not that protected. And that imagine what could have uh, Kazafi, what would have he have done if he had nuclear weapon a year ago? What was Assad, Bashar al-Assad, would have expected to do with nuclear weapons? This regime is not a paradise, even without this kind of tools. And I think that having nuclear weapons in the head of a country like Iran, and let's have no mistake, Iran is after nuclear weapons, not after nuclear energy for peaceful means. They have, alongside one, one plan, they have another plan. And so it is very bad. My problem is that we in Israel have made the Iranian nuclear plan as the exclusive problem of Israel. We speak so much. Remember, our politicians, are, they speak day and night about Iran, 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 Iran. And the more you speak about it, you give the impression of, to the world that... This is your problem. And it necessarily should have a solution with a trademark made in Israel. Everyone, when I travel and give lectures, when Israel is going to attack. I must admit that I benefit from it. I've been invited to Downing 10, to meet with the Prime Minister, to other presidents, ministers. Everyone is at the end of the day they ask, do you think Netanyahu will attack? What do you think that, what is the My answer is that there are two types of people. Those who know the answer will not tell you, and those like me who don't know the answer, you better not ask them. But the the, the obsession that we have speaking about Iran gives a false impression that this is the problem of Israel. And already told you this is not the problem only of Israel. This is the problem of the Western civilization. This is the problem of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, and the Middle East. It is also the problem of Israel. And I I, I was wondering why Saudi Arabia, for example, stated that they might consider allowing Israeli air force to use their airspace to go and attack Iran. Don't do us a favor. Don't give us the right to fly over your territory. Go and do it yourself. You are scared to death. Go to Wikipedia and see what they think about you. So I think that we should be more careful in the way we speak. And I give you another example, example? I was probably one. Of the, I think the first in Israel who did like the term existential threat. Because not because I think Iran is not a serious threat to Israel, but I think that giving them the credit that we are afraid and we are scared to death, it, it is not. It is not appropriate. And it's also sending a wrong message to my children that Iran is going nuclear. If Iran is existential threat, by the Israeli government testimony. And <laughs> Iranian regime wants to destroy Israel. So what, what would logic dictate? Move to New York. That, that's what we don't want. Not because New York is such a bad place, because we want our children to stay in our country. And this statement makes really gives send wrong messages to Tehran and to our children. And I'll tell you what would be my <clears> answer <throat> to Iran. When you say that, I won't say that Iran is an plan. I will tell the Iranians, Israel is indestructible. That's the message that should go from Tel Aviv. Not that we are scared today. And even now, they are sitting there. Afterwards, Hamas suffered. And you read in the Iranian newspapers and all the Muslim world that Hamas won. I don't know this definition of victory. I fail to understand. If after what they suffered in eight days, <coughs> They call it a victory. Well, what would be defeat for them, I don't know. Uh, so it's, uh, that's, you should be, should be more careful. And I think that what I don't see in Israeli policy is that what we are so good, what we believe to be so good at, to be more sophisticated. You know, in 1967, when the Arab countries lost the war in six days, uh, actually, it was not six days, it was six hours. Their air force, our Air Force destroyed all their Air Force, and that paved the way to tremendous victory. The closest person to the president of Egypt, uh, Husni Hassanin Haikar, who was close to uh, Nasser, was asked by a journalist, what was the reason of the Arab defeat? You know what he said? And I like this answer, because it's he said that while, the, while we were playing uh, backgammon, the Israelis were playing chess. Two games that was originated in Iran. So they know something about the one and the other. And, and that's was referring to the sophistication and the creativity of the Israeli mind. I, I, I don't know where it is today. You know, when you go to uh, what is the slogan of the Mossad? You should conduct your wars cunningly, shrewdly. And that's what I'm looking for, more cunning shrewdness. But stating this kind of is Hitler or uh, existential trend doesn't solve the problem. A few years ago, six, seven, I think mean six years ago, I was invited to the. General Assembly of the Jewish Organizations in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu was there together with another speaker, your friend Ervin Kotler was there. He's a great speaker. Uh, I think at this stage he was even better or right than uh, Bibi Netanyahu, which is a wonderful speaker. And Bibi came there with his uh, mantra, ladies and gentlemen, the year is 1938 in Iran, Germany. I had the misfortune to be to speaking in a session after him together with the chief of his, uh, he was the head of the National Security Council and the head of uh, his closest advisor to Bibi Netanyahu, Professor Uzi Arad. And I started <coughs> my talk saying, ladies and gentlemen, the year is not 1938 and there is no January. I think that equating Ahmadinejad with Hitler doesn't do good for us as Jews. Because in my lifetime, Nasser was Hitler, Arafat was Hitler, uh, Gaddafi was Hitler, Saddam was Hitler, and now Ahmadinejad is Hitler. So, what I'm going to tell my children, what was Nazism all about? If you have six Hitlers in one in 60 years, we should keep the memory of history separate from any politics that we know. Let's keep uh, the Holocaust in a different sphere. I don't think we should use it that many times. And I was so happy to read a couple of weeks ago in an in, in, in Israeli newspaper interview with uh, Eli Wiesel, in, in, in which he said the same thing. I know that Dershowitz is having different attitude, I even mean, Kotler is having a different attitude. Because when you speak about Hitler, people know what it is. People understand. But I. I prefer, as a teacher, to uh, to make them understand in different ways. <coughs> now, what can be done? Well, Already before I go to what can be done, let me uh, let me say something about this current wave uh, phase of violence. I think that what happened in Gaza a few weeks ago was unlike many Iranians who believed that it was. Hamas victory or Iran victory. It was it was a victory of the spirit of the people of Israel. Life continued. I'm not a big hero, hero, hero I must admit. But I was invited to give a talk south of Be'er Sheva, just the weekend in which his violence took place. And the organizer asked me, say, are you coming? It didn't even cross my mind that I won't go. And then uh, I was asked, telling my wife, you know, they ask if, we are, if I'm going. I said, "Yeah," I uh, said, "Yes, I'm coming." She said, "I'm coming with you." We went there, and on the way we have silence going on. We had to get off to the car, going to the side. But life continued in Israel, more or less. But no many people were in the shelters, and after this silence was calling us, they went to places to defend themselves. But we continued. I didn't, you know, I didn't decide, I, I, I did go to the south of Beersheba, crossing Beersheba, knowing that this can happen. But it's not me as a, not a big hero, but a, all our people. And the people were asking the government to go on with this war, and once and for good, to put an end to these cycles of violence. You know, it's, it's very strange in Israel that when civilians are being killed, people are more tolerant. But when the army, when our soldiers are being killed, the, the people are losing their tolerance. This is not the, the natural way because the soldiers are trained and they are the people who get to defend the country. But here in the Jewish state of Israel, when soldiers are being killed, we don't want them to go. There was pressure on the government not to, st- to send the troops in, not because Even those who are against the Hamas and against the Palestinians, all are against, but who are really against them, were rethinking, not to set up troops. Mm -hmm. I'm head of a college, and there was professors and students are asking, uh, why won't we close the university, the college, for a few days? And the decision was not. I had to take the decision. You know what I did? I called my daughter-in-law and asked her, is my grandchild going to school tomorrow in the same Tel Aviv area? said, of course he's going. Then I said, would it make sense to close a college or university when kindergarten children are going to continue that? They continue their activities. And our uh, Iron Dome really has done a wonderful job. And it's giving us relief. And understanding that we can defend ourselves, not that it's nice, that no one wants to to live in some such realities, but I think Israeli people show their spirit because they want, they, they are capable of going into a longer this kind of war, attack from the north, attack from the south, and there was a huge difference between Hezbollah attacking Haifa six years ago and the Hamas attacking Beersheba. What happened in, Italy, in six, in eight years of war six israelis were killed it's too many i know everyone was killed or wounded is 100 percent tragedy but look at the whole picture not, now it is that asymmetric war israelis are trained educated and i know that's not what the world think not to kill civilians sometimes we we really put our soldiers in danger but ask them not to do everything possible not to harm bypassers and civilians. On the other side, the dream of the of the Hamas was one thing, to show pictures of civilians Israeli killed, this is their sign of victory. Why they attacked Tel I mean, Aviv? Why they attacked the Russian? They wanted to show pictures with Israeli blood, to show the people in the Middle East. Here is the victory. Now I think that this is a sign of weakness of the Hamas. This is the sign of weakness of Iran that, that confessed for the first time publicly, openly, that they not only train the Iranians, not only they pay money, they also give them all the missiles and often the the things that they are using against us. What they paid for for, for many years have been mostly destroyed. Now, there is a new Middle East in many ways. I know this term is problematic since Shimon Peres used it, the new Middle East. Well, I said there is a different Middle East. There is a different Middle East in which Iran is being weaker and weaker, both domestically and regionally. Look at Hamas press conference when the leader of Hamas was thanking the outside world for helping them. Whom did they mention? They mentioned Turkey, they mentioned uh, uh, Egypt, they mentioned Qatar, the country that they didn't mention is Iran. Hmm. Well, I think it's a calculated move, not to thank Iran. The Iranians were very upset. So Iran is weakening. Egypt is becoming much more meaningful actor in the Middle East politics. And these are not, it's not yet clear what is the role of Morsi playing. I think in this crisis, he proved that he, he pays the lip service to the Palestinian cause, but actually acting in a way which I think the Israelis were more or less welcoming, not really helping, helping the Hamas. Then we have Syria, bleeding, but Bashar al-Assad is benefiting from the experience of the past. People see what happened to Iraq when they removed the Shah. Here you get the opposite. You remove Mubarak and you have the Muslim brothers. So why they would be eager to remove, uh, to have Bashar al-Assad leave office? And the current situation in which they fight with each other is I don't want to be cynical, but it's not that bad from the outside. The alternative to to Bashar is... Now, with whom Iran is identified? With bleeding Bashar al-Assad. There are two countries in the Middle East, viewed from Tehran, that are important. One is Syria, in which they are losing, and the other is Bahrain. Now, look at the two countries. In Bahrain, they are with the people against the government, In Syria, they are with the government against the people. So what is the ideology? And in Bahrain, they have been stopped. They have been stopped mainly by Saudi Arabia. I can tell you one thing about the Saudis. The Saudis usually don't speak, unlike our Israeli politicians. (laughs) And even less, they act. They don't send troops they can ask the, the Americans to come and help, them. unlike the Israelis who have never asked Americans to come and fight for us. In the case of Bahrain, Saudi Arabia sent troops to Bahrain. Yeah, but It's yeah. very meaningful. Usually they sign checks. They don't sign soldiers. In this case, it's been so, how, how upset were the Saudis from the fact that United States did not interfere to save the bullets they sent. In, in, in Syria, they are not successful either. Now, I want to conclude, but what can be done with the issue of Iran? One thing I would say, Iran, the Iranian nuclear program has a solution, not necessarily military. If the Western world, if Europe will join the United States to pressure Iran heavily, Iran would be forced to change its policy. Now, pressure is not necessarily military. You start with moral pressure of Iran. On, on Iran. Let's start with human rights in Iran. Have your newspapers write about violation of human rights every day in your newspaper. Yes. Iranians care what you think about. Them. You know, you always make people speak about how Iran is uh, sensitive to be respected. They want to be respected. If you want so much to be respected, if you criticize their record of of human rights, you show them disrespect, it will be meaningful. Then, for example, Canada cut diplomatic relations with Iran.
1: Imagine if another
2: 10 countries worldwide were cutting relations with Iran. It was a devastating situation for the Iranians. But rather than doing so, they are competing with, ad- with others. Who will, who will we have more economic ties with Iran? Then, you have economic pressure. And you could see the impact of the economic pressure. Iraq today is extending and to speak with the Americans. It's not secret. Probably there are already going on negotiations between, Iraq- between Iran and the United States. The tragedy until now was that whenever Iran was weak and was asking for uh, some uh, negotiations with Iran, America did not accept. When the United States wanted the negotiation, the Iranians didn't accept. I think that today we are in a good position if which both the United States and Iran are weak. And this situation of weakness may lead to find a political solution. The political solution is not that everyone will get exactly what it wished. It means that I think the solution they should find is that both will be equally dissatisfied. <laughs> That's the, the most that you can ask in that, under the circumstances. But I think that uh, the re-election of Obama and uh, the fact that Iran is weak may, may lead to serious negotiations that I think we are already in this process, and this will give uh, the Israeli regime another six months to decide. What it takes for the West and the United States is to show determination. Now, many people wonder if it would be good to vote for Obama four years ago to begin with. And I don't want to interfere with your politics, but I thought that offering, engaging Iran was a good idea. But when you engage Iran, and in January you are coming to the White House, and in June young Iranians going to the street and demonstrating to gain their freedoms, and the President of the United States doesn't say a word for 10 days, this is betraying the people in that's that dependent, went to the streets because of Obama. Mm. Is it going to be changed now? I don't know. The fact remains that for President Obama, he will be remembered in history, not, I would say, by the social reform, health services, and other things. He will be remembered if under his watch, Iran is being nuclear, and let this message go to the White House. That's the main—that's the main uh, goal of the administration, <coughs> not to allow such a radical ideology to be nuclear at the same time. And finally, if you ask me, who can bring the remedy and the salvation to the Iranian people? I will tell you, this is the young people of Iran. Look at the students in Iran. Look at the girls in Iran. And these people are not happy. The people are looking for freedoms. This regime did not satisfy the intentions of their parents. And you, ultimately I think this is the young people who will bring the change. The problem is, and people ask, so when it's going to happen? You have to accept that there are questions for which we don't have answers. We don't know in history what makes people one day to change direction and start moving in a new direction. We didn't see the Islamic revolution Iran coming. We didn't see the fall of Mubarak. We didn't see the fall of the Soviet Union. There are so many things that experts fail to see. After this happened, I'm sure there will be many professors who will tell you, of course, I knew uh, it was uh, clear. The sign was on the wall. The sign may all be on the wall, but we don't know, because historians, experts don't know the future and your guess is as good as my guess and other guess but I think that ultimately the, the solution is in the hands of the people of Iran and I hope that this train or trend of social change will not will come before Iran is nuclear And stop it. thank you
0: So, we're going to have a QA session. I'm you, going to start you. off with a, a challenge. i us try and challenge you a bit, You say how Obama um, will be remembered if, how, what happens with Iran, if Iran gets a bomb, your not. Fareed Zakaria, a journalist, a prominent journalist in the United States and intellectual, public intellectual, has consistently been sending trial balloons on behalf of Mr. Obama. So he sends ideas out into the media, He's a PR expert, to, to test the waters on all sorts of issues. He's a close associate of Obama. Yesterday, at the John Hopkins School, he was in a discussion with Yelden, uh, Charles Krauthammer, Yadlin, Yadlin, sorry. Krauthammer, Quartzman, um, and him. And Zach- Zachar- uh, Farid Zakaria has always been uh, a a right? has always been sort of uh, on the fence when it comes to Iran. He's actually been promoting Iran in different ways and I've been sort of monitoring what he's been doing for all sorts of reasons including at Atiyah. Mm-hmm. At this meeting he said it's time that we learn to live with Iran and Nepal. Mm-hmm. That this is not an issue of concern in the United States. Not, the, the truth is coming out. And I assure you from sitting in this country that this is going to This is an attempt to see what happens by Mr. Obama. That's point number one. Point number two, when it comes to anti-Semitism, when it comes to human rights in the United States of America today, unlike in different Democratic and Republican moments in history with South Africa, with Soviet Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, there's a silence today on human rights. Joe Klein, Beinhardt, Thomas Friedman, Farid Zakhari, the very important public intellectuals, um, are saying Iran, the Arab Spring, the Brotherhood, are moderate, secular, uh, that this is democracy, etc., etc. So, this is the public sphere. When it comes to anti anti Semitism in this country, and I'm quoting Padohurtz for the first time in my life, he, he wrote the article, The Hatred That Dare Not Speak Its Name. And we are not speaking about it, there's no public outrage in this country about the treatment of Jews in the rhetoric of the of the Muslim Brotherhood and in Iran, of women, of gay people, of religious pluralism, and basic democratic notions of citizenship. There's silence in, in the media of record, in the institutions of record. So that's point number one. Point number two, you speak about Iran being a pragmatist uh, regime. Gaddafi was trying to get nuclear weapons, apparently, and he made a deal with the Americans. He was eliminated. He was physically eliminated by the United States. Iran is seeing this, and they're thinking, what's going to be? Uh, The allies of the United States have been thrown under the bus by this government. So from a pragmatist perspective, why why would Iran, with the silence on human rights issues, with the lack of pressure when it comes to radical Islam in the Middle East, and certainly on Iran what what would make them, from a pragmatic perspective, given this situation, to move, uh, to make a deal with the United States. Um, and I just wanted to say also, so from Gaddafi, pragmatism, and I think when Bush, after 9-11, was very strong, the Iranians were very, tried their best to be on very good terms with the United States, and they were well behaved for a few years. And many. Issues of Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. When there was pressure on them from the United States, they behaved, I think, very uh, pragmatically, as you say. But now there is no pressure, and I would look, just like to say a quick word, not comparing what happened to Hitler, but if we look at globalization, there's tremendous dislocation. States are crumbling. There's a whole now a whole new area of uh, research looking at failed states. This is due to neoliberalism, there's all sorts of reasons why states are failing, and radical Islamists are filling the vacuum and providing goods and services and and, uh, hospitals, education where the state used to provide, health care, food subsidies where the state used to provide and give hope to people, the Islamists, the Brotherhood and others are are doing this. The Nazis rose to power with tremendous marginalization, and they gave white Europeans hope for a better future, for, for a better economy. And this is happening now in the Middle East, and there is no other alternative that I see coming to the rescue of these marginalized people. And we in the West are, are no longer holding out either another economic alternative, and certainly not human rights. We're silent. So from, from an Iranian regime's perspective, where I think they've been you know, given a free pass, if I was the Iranian regime and I'm building my nuclear weapons program, I would continue. So, mm. where, where, if the regime is pragmatic, given the silence of human rights, and it's not going to change tomorrow in this country, what, what, what would be the impetus for Iran to, to really give up its weapons program and become a better citizen of the international? Race? Let him answer and then, It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, time to, uh, briefly, one more quick point. You, and I agree with you. You said there's a difference between the notion of free elections. And they were fair and open elections, but they weren't democratic elections. And that's a very important thing that people. And you went. Uh, in Egypt and other places. And I think you, you pointed out very importantly that people here have forgotten what democracy was. Because if you look at the anti apartheid movement, for example, there were elections after there were institutions and constitutions that were put in place that were truly democratic from a legal, political perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing like that's happening in the Middle So I, I agree with that.
2: Okay. Uh, uh, would it be possible to live with Iran is a nuclear state? I think that's, it's not new, his uh, attempt to say that it's not the end of the world. Uh, I think it was a few months ago. uh, Students in Columbia University had had their journal had questions to many Iran experts, Uh, and they also asked me to write short uh, um, open kind of open about is it will it be possible to live with Iran, which is nuclear? Many schools. It's okay. It's easy to say it's okay. I mean, don't live in the Middle East. Uh, When you live in the Middle East, I am concerned, and I tell you, no less than I am concerned for Iran, I am concerned for Pakistan. So It's uh, another country that uh, it's it's not uh, really fun to see this kind of regime holding nuclear weapons, but they didn't target Israel, so we don't, in Israel, obsess with it. But Iran is every day saying, get to Israel, get to Israel, and of course it, it, it is a problem. Would it use them to Usually, I don't make predictions, and uh, Charles. You know that I don't. I, I hate to go into predictions. I was trained as a student of history, and I don't know what even the future would be. But it would be well. I can here. I can be uh, allow myself to make predictions because if I am wrong, I will not be alive to answer your criticism. <laughs> but I think that Iran going nuclear. Iran is not going to use it because they should be very crazy. And they're more stupid than they are to use nuclear weapons because they know what it takes. There will be no Iraq if they play with these toys. And I think this is something that they know. But there are in Iran several apocalyptical kind of people that for them to be killed is a kind of inducement. They, they want to be killed. So and what, what big deal if you kill them? But I think that the government by and large is not subscribed to this kind of idea that your intention is to be killed. But I, I say the thing that uh, I don't want to live in Israel in the Middle East where a country like Iran ruled by this ideology have What would Hezbollah do under under the umbrella of nuclear Iran? What Hamas would do? The chutzpah that they have now is nothing compared to what they will have if if Iran is nuclear. So uh, I don't know how else I can put it. About Jews and Iran, let's let's be fair. The Iranians have been, by and large, fair in treating the Jews of Iran after the Islamic Revolution. <coughs> well, maybe fair is not the right word, but the fact remains that there are more Jews in Iran than in the rest of the Muslim world combined. The fact is that the Jews who wish to leave Iran could have left Iran. It's sufficient for you to go to Great Day <coughs> or to I mean, Beverly Hills. When I say Great Day, people are offended. Kings Point is a better place. So, you can see them. The majority of the Jews of Iran left Iran. As a Zionist Israeli, I am uh, not happy that m- the majority of those who left Iran did not come to Israel. I think there's a problem with this concept of Zionism. When you see uh, Russian Jews, Iranian Jews leaving in their country, Israel is not the first choice. Uh, and then uh, but they live there under fear they live there with their children being educated death to Israel death to Israel they live there when there is a war in, in, in Gaza the leaders of the Iranian Jews are being called to and I'm pressured to come out with statements against the State of Israel and the blame the have and there is something that I resent Ahmedinejad is not that much for his statements that wiping out Israel from the map but his denial of Holocaust. Here we see a country and leaders of country president of, of Iran organizing a kind of international seminar to deny the Holocaust test of caricatures about the Holocaust and this for me is even worse than having people. Uh, Iranian pragmatism and the change of, of attitudes. I think that their rationale is not my rationale. I said that they would change their policy when they have to pay heavy price. The question is, what is the heavy price that they don't want to pay? Probably they pay higher price than I would think appropriate but with the end of the day when there would be pressure like the, i think we see signs of it today when the iranian currency lost 50% of its value in 6 months when unemployment is in the rise when there are so, so many economic problems are this government is facing, with when letters of credits of iranian banks are not accepted for international trading this is these kind of things that you do more and more. I don't know what would be the, the last straw that will break the camel's back. But I know if you want to break this camel's back, you should put more straws, more straws, and more straws. One of them will do the job at the end. Uh, now, under pressure, you said, John, that Iran is cooperating with, uh, with Iran, with the United States. I think that if you, Iranians are honest with themselves, and they ask themselves, which is the country that has done the greatest services to Iran national interest, they can pick up only one country, the United States of America. The United States in the ninety one went all the way to Iraq and crashed the military power of the enemy number one of Iran that with whom they fought eight years. (coughs) They didn't manage to do the job. America destroyed the military power of Saddam Hussein. In 2002, they went to the other side, to the the eastern border of Iran, to remove the enemy number two of Iran. In 2000, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. 2003, they went back to Iraq to end the job. Beautiful services America has done for Iran's national interests. What well, they have their bizarre way to say thank you to the United States. <laughs> but I think uh, so. It's not only that pragmatism. I think any rational thinking. And you know, between Iran and Israel, if you want to solve the problem, it's five minutes. Between Iran and the United States, there is no strategic conflict of interest. But why? If you make this goes back to this Middle Eastern mind. Saddam Hussein is a hero. Why? He survived attacked by the United States and was kicked out by the United States. You struggle with America, you are strong. Hamas struggles with Israel, they are in they are they are in victory. There's something wrong with this vocabulary and determination that they have about what is victory. I I didn't like this term, uh, Arab Spring, from the beginning. I was not hopeful that it would bring results. I was, at that time, in February 2011, in the, at Oxford, in my sabbatical. And I was probably the only one who say that was not optimistic, because the mood in the Oxford didn't if you think that American campuses are hostile to Israel, and they wait until you go to Great Britain. <laughs> From Soas to Cambridge, to, uh, to Oxford, Cambridge, I have not been that much, but uh, other, other schools. And everyone was happy. This is the beginning of new era, the Arab Spring. And you know, the Arab Spring, I, I saw that the idea of Arab Spring. Because it was in the winter, why you call it Arab Spring? <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, the Arab Spring. For me, it was the Spring of Europe in 1848. This was this. That's the reason to call it Arab Spring. I, I knew this was not going to be European Spring and not democracy because I saw the Iranian Revolution. How these dreams, in reality, has did not really pro- uh, bring any any something. And when I say that people making comparison between Iran and Egypt, they say, you know, there's only one thing that they have in common, clearly, that that one cannot argue. Removal of the Shah and the victory of this opposition in Egypt happened in the same day, February 11th. Rather than that, you cannot do in history any comparison. Democracy will not come out of it. And unfortunately, as you can see, other people, organized groups, are coming in and and, and buying the support of, of the people. And these Islamists, and I had to make comparisons, but we have some religious parties in Israel, they are living from the misery of the people. Because people really want to have better life. And I, I'm not sure that these movements in the Muslim world, they want really to bring to elevate people, to get them out of this. Uh, and I think that modern society, and I know my friend, Mrs. Nina Winner, is here founded the, the ISEF, International Asphalonic Education Fund. The one way to, to solve the problem is do what ISEF is doing, other movements of try and help people to get out of this cycle of ignorance and, and poverty. Give them hope, give them future. I don't think that these Islamists want to give better future to their children. They want to keep them in such level of ignorance, and, and so, uh, like in Iran, they want them to go to university. Don't want them to go to the university. And I could say the same thing about this Sephardi religious party in Israel, Shas, that they have the same problem there. So I think that the, the, the people joining such movements is the belief that this movement will bring them, or upgrade them uh, uh, to to, to new life, to new level. But in reality, they don't do it. And again, I go back to, it's it's really not that I'm happy about it. With all the money that Iran has, where is the prosperity and welfare for the people of Iran? It's devastating to live in a rich country with poor people. And that's the reality in Iran. Under the Shah, then today. How you change it, I
0: don't know. It's very, it's, it's one day it may happen, I don't know where so. we, we don't have that much time, so we'll try and take short. I, I thought it was an
3: outstanding talk. Very that I, I learned so much about. I haven't been in a talk like this in a long, long time to learn about Iran and everything when you share your knowledge. One thing I was just curious about. I also make the comment about the last comment here that Halevi from Mossad also made the comment Israel can live with the nuclear Iran. That's come out more than once. Uh, but you don't, you didn't talk a lot about the Sunni-Shiite split. Although you mentioned it, and what I'm curious about, could you explain, or could, is there any credence to the idea that Iran is so anti-Israel because it's after the Arab street in the Sunni countries? Uh, let me say about a word
2: about my friend Efraim Levy, with, I, with whom I share many ideas. Uh, Efraim Levy is not a lot. And I don't speak about the academics, speak about the military. I think again, as an Israeli, I am proud to see how almost all the chief officers of the Mossad of the internal security of the army, raised their voice on the issue of Iran, actually told the prime minister not to go to war in Iran. We don't like it because I don't think they should go public. There's the oldest people, like Ephraim Malvi, or Mayor Dagan, uh, Yuval Diskin, they know how to speak to our prime minister. The door of the prime minister, any prime minister, is open to them. To go public, it's something else, but still, you don't find many democracies in which the generals will go to the prime minister and challenge his decision or his, he declared to be his intention. So you may not be happy with this happening, but you look at the half full of the glass, you see democracy in action. Now, I didn't speak much about sunni Shi, because unlike many of my colleagues, I don't think it's a major issue. At the end of the day, there are both... And I'm not, I'm not unaware of the differences between Shiites and Sunnis, but I think, I think that at the end really the gulf is not that wide. Here is a political contest for uh, leadership of the Muslim world. And Iran is in this disadvantage because Iran is a Shiite country. And Shiism are maybe 13, 14% of the Muslims. You cannot claim to be the leader of the Muslim world when coming from a minority of 34. Uh, but it's it's really appealing when you go yeah. every today, every conference that you have, they speak about Sunnis and Shiites. I feel sometimes that you must have a sushi session in any conference. Sunni, Shiite at the end of the day, you get Sunni, Shiite. I think <laughs> my impression is that the Shiites of Iraq, at the end of the day, they are more faithful to Iraq than they are to the Iranian regime, Shiite regime, and the Arabs of khuzestan are more faithful to Iran than they are to. Iraqis, so the, he's, he's significant, but I don't
0: subscribe to this this major issue. Richard and Bruce, quick questions, quick answers. Could you provide some more um, <clears throat> detail
2: about the apocalyptic concept of Shia Islam in Iran? The well, yes, yes, it's, uh, it's. Uh, I must tell you, it's Friday. I'll give you an example from the president of Iran, President Ahmadinejad, who never missed an opportunity to come to the United States. His presidency, every year, the, the General Assembly of the UN, he's there. Come shopping. shopping. I know, he's shopping, not shopping. He's selling his ideas. And two years ago, I wrote an article asking the sh- sharks of American journalism the media not to interview him because he's smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. He knows how to change the idea that he went to Columbia University and you know what uh, statements he did made. He came from, after his first visit to the UN as president, 2005, he came back to Iran mm-hmm. and was sharing his, his uh, impressions with an Ayatollah. He was sitting on the floor and telling this Ayatollah mm-hmm. about his trip to the UN. And this on the, on the, it is, I know that you go to the YouTube or whatever, you found my lecture there, you can find Ahmadinejad as well. And then he said that uh, in the 27 minutes of my talk in the general assembly, right. it was, everyone was quiet, looking, their, their eyes were glued to me, and this was because above my head there was an hour of light with God. Well, there is also light here, but it's a green button. It's different. <laughs> you know, leaders who speak in such language frighten me. More recently, when he was in the UN last year, some of his close associates were put in jail. Why? Because they produced a movie in which they show, a video in which they show that the Imam, the hidden Imam, the Shiite Messiah, is is coming. Now, who should be frightened if the Messiah is coming? The supreme leader of Iran, because he is taking the place of the Mahdi until he comes. And if the Mahdi is coming, you sh- you can go. So they put all the people of of, Ahmad, of Ahmadinejad in jail. They speak in a language that is really scary. And I will give you one more example because I don't want to go deeper. Last year, the chief of staff of, the, of Iran appeared on TV, and he was speaking about, and this is the chief of the staff speaking on Iranian national television, in which he said that <coughs> in the year of 2006, in the war in Lebanon, a group of Israeli soldiers while attacking the Hezbollah were freezed on their place and were shocked. And they were standing there. And the commander asked them, why you don't continue your fighting? And this commander, in place that, that the battalion commander said don't you see this Arab uh, uh, with white dress riding a horse which is the, the Imam is standing there if the chief of staff of Iran speaks such a language apocalyptic so of course we are we are having all reasons to be scared but in the competition between them, these are very tiny minority, compared with other radicals, which are not much better, but don't have this kind of apocalyptic vision.
0: Okay, so we have, I'm sorry, one more question. So I'll collect two quick questions, and that we will give one answer. So you and then, two. Uh, You mentioned to, uh, two possibilities, a political, uh, um, a painful political compromise with the United States,
2: and some sort of a, the internal regime change, uh, do you think that some the political compromise that, that you think is the possible would actually undermine
0: the possibility of the regime change? Okay, and then Bruce, a quick question.
3: Yeah, um, I, I actually have a question about presentation framework, and that is I was listening to everything that you were saying, and I hear this a lot in Middle Eastern analyses, and people sort of focus on the region that they're focused on, and they keep touching on other things and saying, well, you know, but there's also this problem, there's also this problem. The appropriate framework is that we're looking at a dysfunctional society. And, and, that, and that it's not so much that there's this problem, that there's this problem. But there are different manifestations of the same underlying dysfunctionality. In the same way that somebody who lives in a dysfunctional home might have an alcoholic mother and an abusive stepfather. And you'd never say, no, 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 you can only complain about one of them. And, and I think that, that, that by leaving out this type of framework, um, we confuse particularly a lot of American audiences who don't have a a very strong background. And I was wondering if you could comment on why, you know, why not only you, but I very rarely hear people grounding it in in, in this notion of, we've got a dysfunctional society and a dysfunctional region, and that dysfunctionality just manifests itself in different ways. And we can talk about its manifestation among the the Iranian clerics, and you know, not, you know, and, and this is sort of the theme that ties all the pieces together. And I, just, I keep looking for it, I keep not finding it. Uh, it's,
2: a, it's a good way to look at it. I think that we, we, these factional systems may, may remain in place for a long time. The fact that it is dysfunctional in your view, doesn't mean that the people in the villages of Iran look at it at the same time. Here there is also there is the satisfaction of having a clerical rule. Islam is powerful. Islam, you know, if you are a Muslim, if you devote know, Muslim, you'd be very happy. This is an era of the power of Islam. At the same would say it's a weakness of Islam. Look at Europe. Look at Muslims in Europe. Uh, And it's uh, a new new era in the the self-confidence. So the people who sit in Iran and are being brainwashed by what is, in my view, insignificant, may not be convinced easily to set against a government which is God-given or religious legitimacy and I don't think that is. I think that there is some kind of uh, gap between realizing that the situation is bad and being capable of changing it. And to be able to change it, you need also a viable alternative ideology that doesn't exist. You don't have a leadership that uh, that you can say, "Well, this guy are going to to, wait, to to pave the way." So but I agree that this is a dysfunctional society, and much of the problems of the Islamic regime are the results of the Islamic regime of Iran. They cannot go back and say the Shah was bad. There is a generation in Iran who don't know who was the Shah, for God's sake. Maybe 75 of the people of Iran were not born when, 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 when Khomeini came to Iran. So there is a limit how much you can use it. But the ideology, plus the determination to fight for their power. They suppress the people. And they put it very clearly. And it's also a lesson that they told Bashar al-Assad. And they said, we are not going to let them, the opposition, to do to us what we did to the Shah. And that they learned the lesson of the Islamic revolution. Now, this lady asked about uh, change of regime. I never use the term change of regime because I don't care what kind of regime they have. The type of regime that countries have is totally for them to decide. I care about the policy of this regime and I don't want them to kill my children. That's as much as I care about Iran. They can have Islamic Republic, monarchy, banana republic, whatever they want. It's up to them to decide the type of government. I care about the policy of this. The policy of this government is very hostile to the values that I care for and to the country that I'm coming from.
0: And on that note, so David, thank you very much. Yeah. And also, uh, so in two weeks, David, the a very interesting...